Today we discuss the military-industrial complex in the wake of the nuclear submarine deal between the United States and Australia that has caused a diplomatic crisis with France. A new alliance between the U.S., Australia, and the U.K. has trashed a submarine deal France had with Australia worth tens of billions of dollars awarding the sale instead to the United States. How does the war economy help keep U.S. capitalism afloat? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality, there's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We're happy to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to this show. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out his work at rdwolf.com, and that's rdwolff.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for joining. I mean, we're looking at the headlines in the general interest newspapers, even the Wall Street Journal, which is, of course, not only a general interest newspaper, but in some ways is. And the headlines for the last week were about the friction between the United States and France, and whether Biden was continuing, you know, the Donald Trump effort to sort of sabotage traditional allies this time with France. Is there really a difference between Trump and Biden when it comes to the way the U.S. manages its principal allies? All that kind of talk. But then I'm looking at Forbes magazine, and this is an article authored by Charles Tiefer. And I want to read a couple sentences to you, Richard, and to the audience, and then have you take it from there. Here it is. Under the cloud of smoke around the Australian submarine deal are the unspoken aspects of the enrichment of American military contractors. There is no public mention of which American contractors will build the expensive parts of the expensive Australian submarines. Even more significant, there is no public mention of how there used to be, but will not be, debate on the hundreds of billions of dollars for a large fleet of expensive submarines for the United States itself. However, there is plenty to figure out on these unspoken subjects. I, this is Charles Tiefer, was a commissioner on the Commission on Wartime Contracting in Iraq and Afghanistan. I have seen military contractors in action. I have learned one must figure things out before they tell us. 
First of all, what American contractors will build the parts of the submarine? I assume that the submarines for Australia will be assembled at Australia's formidable shipyards. Among other reasons, that will buy off the Australia's own military industry and the associated Australian ministers and legislators. However, the big money is in the parts rather than the assembly. Never is this more so than with today's nuclear submarine for which the, quote, parts, close quote, include a nuclear reactor and all of its associated gear. As for the American contractors for these pricey parts, the likeliest candidates are those who build the most advanced American nuclear submarine. That submarine is the Columbia-class submarine designed to replace the Ohio-class United States submarine. And they're putting a new submarine every year. I'll finish with this. The cold cash figures for the Columbia-class program are hard to believe. The total life cycle cost of the entire Columbia class is estimated, these are for submarines, at $347 billion. The cost to build Columbia, the lead boat of the class, will be an estimated $6.2 billion. That's one submarine. The Navy has a goal of reducing the average cost of the remaining 11 to a mere, and I think mere is, of course, sarcastic, $4.9 billion. Anyway, Richard Wolf, you know, the talk was, what about France? What about Australia and China's relationship? But when you get to the ABCs of militarism, maybe Charles Tiefer is just about right. Yeah, you know, the foreign affairs of capitalist countries, including the United States, are always a bit of the tail on the dog. And what I mean is, there's a lot of reasons why foreign activities are entered into. If you hear the leaders tell you it's all about geopolitics, don't listen anymore. You're being hustled. You're being sold a piece of the Brooklyn Bridge by a person who has no right to do so. Domestic politics, domestic economics are always, always at the core of foreign policies. Yes, the foreign situation plays a role, but that's all it ever does. Let me start by pointing it out in terms of Afghanistan, and then we'll get to Australia. In Afghanistan, there were clearly losers. The people of Afghanistan lost. Many thousands of them were killed. Many more thousands of them were wounded. Many more thousands of them were forced to become refugees in their own or other lands. To give you an idea of what was done when the Americans landed there at the beginning of the war, three quarters of the people in Afghanistan did not yet have electricity. When the United States left, two thirds of them still did not have electricity. Economic development was not what happened there military activity, huge amounts of money, destroyed that already poor country. It was a war, of course, that makes you remember the Bible story of David and Goliath, with the United States playing the role of Goliath. So what was it about? Was it to capture 
wonderful materials that were in Afghanistan? Absolutely not. They're not enough there. It would have been cheaper to buy them 50 times over than to fight this war. Was it to win the hearts and minds of the people? Well, if it was, it was one of the greatest failures in human history, since clearly the victory of the Taliban, a poor, poorly equipped, scattered force of people, no match for the number one military power in the world when the war began. But they won the hearts and minds of the Afghan people, not the United States. All of the sophisticated techniques supposedly learned in the previous decades by the United States military added up to a big fat loss. So the Taliban won. Americans died, thousands of them. Americans suffered mental and physical injuries. I assume most of your listeners know that more Americans who had served in Afghanistan died by their own hand from suicide back in the States more than died on the battlefields in Afghanistan. So the Taliban won, but they won a destroyed economy, a wrecked population, a poor country to begin with, and now a pariah country as Europeans, Japanese, and Americans maneuver to hold them in a kind of bondage of poverty and isolation for who knows how long. But there is really one big winner, isn't there? The bill is variously tabulated at between one and two trillion dollars just for Afghanistan. I take my numbers from the project of Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, that has an institute keeping track of the costs of U.S. wars this century. Total cost, in case you're interested, since 9-11 is estimated at $8 trillion, one to two for Afghanistan. Where did that money go? Well, the biggest bulk of it went to American manufacturers of war equipment, war materials, support for those over there, building the bases over there, equipping them with guns and tanks and trucks and missiles and drones and all of the other apparatus of modern warfare. For them, the war was a wonderful which you can quickly see by just following the trajectory of the value of the stocks of the five or six major companies, Northrop Grumman, General Dynamics, Raytheon, they're well-known names. See what happened to their stocks over the length of the Afghanistani war, and you will see who the big winners were. And that has been true since the end of the Second World War. That war got us out of the Depression by creating an immense demand for all of the equipment and the uniforms and the guns and the bullets and the ships and the planes to fight World War II, partly in Europe, partly in East Asia. When that war was over, the great fear in the United States 
I'm talking 1945 and 46. The great fear in the United States was that the war had put the unemployed of the Great Depression to work. Half of the unemployed were inducted into the military, and the other half were put to work making the uniforms and guns that those soldiers wore and used. And so the great fear in 1945 and 6 was, now that the war was over, now that the troops would be demobilized, would we sink back into a depression? Because we had been in one from 1929 until the war got us out of it early in 1941 and 2. How did we deal with that fear? The answer was to get the government into sustaining our economy in a way that we could assume, hope, cross our fingers, would not slide us back into the collapse of the Depression. And that couldn't be done by producing the goods and services that everybody else produces, because that would have put the government smack into competition with private enterprise. No, no, no. The government would have to come up with a way to stimulate and support and sustain the private capitalist economy without competing with it. And the way that was found, by the way, not the only way to do it, but the way that was found in America, above all else, was the military-industrial complex. Keep producing as if the war had never stopped. And for the defense industries, it in fact never did. We had to rearm. We had to prepare. We had the Cold War with the Russians. That was a really good one. Our ally in World War II transformed literally overnight into our great threatening enemy. That was a way to have the government spend oodles of money on the military. And when the Russian threat collapsed with the implosion of the Soviet Union in 1989, we quickly transitioned to a war, an endless war, it turned out, on terrorism. How wonderful. That kept us going for a while, a couple of decades, and now we have the new one, the Cold War against China. Never let a good thing go to waste. Always have a big, bad enemy out there. But the purpose is not to actually fight the war. The purpose is to justify massive government support for a private capitalism that cannot make it on its own. In economics, we have something called military Keynesianism. That's when the government spends a vast amount of money keeping the economy afloat. That's Keynes but we call it military Keynesianism because what the government overwhelmingly spends on is the military. And if you're going to do that, then you have to have a foreign enemy. You have to have one that you can make as scary as possible for the largest number of people, punctuated every little while with some frightening event that can really set people off, whether it's real or imagined. I won't remind you of the Tonkin Bay escapade that 
justified the war in Vietnam, which the United States lost, or 9-11, or, and I could fill in the blank with more examples than we have time for. This business in Australia is just the latest small chapter in what we're talking about. It's an enormous contract, as your reading from Forbes magazine demonstrate. It's a bigger contract than existed before. It will help American producers. By the way, make no mistake, the deal between Australia and France, which was the one that was broken unilaterally by the United States and Australia without even telling the French, that included a number of huge subcontracts for American military producers. So they lost out on that one, but they were compensated by an even bigger one directly between the United States and Australia. The needs of the defense industries are attended to one way or the other. Nobody should be in any way surprised. And one last point. All of this, all of this is justified by a continuing drumbeat of the demonization of China. Every time an American politician unloads his or her windy imagination on things in China, you're not listening to analysis and you're certainly not listening to knowledge. You're listening to a concerted program of demonization. Let me give you an illustration and I'll stop. Early after the Russian Revolution in 1917, the new Soviet Union was invaded by four countries' troops, Britain, France, Japan, and the United States. The United States landed 10,000 troops on the soil of the Soviet Union, troops who went to war against the new Soviet government, who killed Russians serving that government. Did the United States invade the Soviet Union? Yes. Did the Soviet Union ever invade the United States? No. Who had what right to be afraid of whom in this relationship? Well, if you understand the demonization of the Soviet Union during the Cold War, you will understand why Americans carefully avoid dealing with that fact I just rendered in order to sustain the Cold War, which was there to sustain the maintenance of a government to support a private capitalism which could not support itself. And today, the Cold War against China which is the number one priority of the Obama and Trump and Biden administration's foreign policy, called by Obama the pivot to Asia, called by Trump the trade war, and now called by Mr. Biden the effort to relieve the suffering of the Uyghur people and the Hong Kong population anything and everything put to the service of justifying the kinds of deals that were just completed between the United States and Australia. Very good words, very important, Professor Wolf. You know, I was 
I was thinking about the national security state, as we sometimes call it. And, you know, in 1979, when the Soviets entered Afghanistan, they came in on the side of a a socialist government that was carrying out, you know, minimum sort of democratic, modern democratic, secular reforms, like that girls should be able to go to school, not only in Kabul, but everywhere. And they were, they established a minimum wage for the first time and legalized the right of workers to form unions. And they carried out land reform, although they met with a lot of opposition from semi-feudal elements who used religion as an organizing tool. So the US CIA, you know, went to war against the socialist government. And finally, that government, which had become divided and feeble, asked for help from the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union came in in 1979. And that became the trigger. There was the boycott of the Moscow Olympics. There was, you know, the Soviets, even though we never talk about the U.S. invading Afghanistan as like this major violation of anybody's human rights, the, the Soviet intervention in Afghanistan was targeted as like the biggest violation of human rights, you know, like in the last 50 years or something like that. But I was struck because there was a, a pretty profound recession at that time. It would have been caused by Paul Volcker. Uh, it was deliberately trying to de-inflate or stop runaway inflation or semi-runaway inflation by raising interest rates and tanking the economy for a while. And the front page of the Wall Street Journal, not like the New York Daily News or the New York Post, but the front page of the Wall Street Journal, the day after the Soviets came into Afghanistan, the headline was, and I remember it vividly, was military stocks soar on Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. I was like, yeah, they're so happy because they're doing exactly what you said. They're they're finding the way to create another round of military spending because, of course, they needed the enemy to do it. Now, the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, and I don't know if you ever saw the movie Canadian Bacon by Michael Moore, but the thesis was that the U.S. president fears that the American economy is going to tank because there's no longer an enemy, because the Soviet Union unanticipatedly collapsed. And so now there's no enemy and and what to do. So in the movie plot, they try to start a Cold War with the new Russian president, but he rejects it. Then there's talk about starting a war on terrorism, but that's rejected and deemed to be too absurd. And so serendipitously, the president's national security advisor turns to a, a brawl that broke out between Canadians in Ontario and Americans who came over from Buffalo for a hockey game and a brawl ensues after an American from Buffalo criticizes Canadian beer and this big fight breaks out. And so Canadian bacon is the president seizes upon the idea that Canada is indeed a suitable enemy. And so a new military arms race begins. Anyway, it's all parody, of course, but it speaks exactly exactly to what you're saying. But the thing that about this, this need for an enemy, the parody isn't actually funny because it reflects so many realities. You mentioned how many Americans died in combat versus the number who died from suicide. According to the Military Times in June of this year, Military Times, not a left-wing newspaper, 30,177 members of the U.S. military committed suicide after their deployments 
since 2001. 30,000 compared to 7,000 who died in combat. That's actually a terrible tragedy. And again, the military contractors just so rich, making money hand over fist, proclaiming that they love veterans and that if anybody takes a knee at a football game, they're dishonoring veterans. And yet this mass epidemic of suicide, and they couldn't give a damn. And finally, I want you to address this other point, and then we'll give you the last word here, Professor Wolf. Obama demanded that the NATO allies spend at least 2% of their national budget on military goods in order to be good faith members of NATO. President Trump took that on and said he was going to enforce it. But the premise was not to give 2% of their GDP to NATO. It was just spend 2% of your GDP on military goods. And the Europeans didn't want to do that because they have social democratic systems. They use their money for other things. And yet the American media, almost every single one of them, liberal MSNBC or Fox News, doesn't matter. They all echo the theme, NATO allies are not doing their part. But by doing their part, they're talking about spending more and more and more money on death and destruction. Yeah, let me respond by reminding everyone of the old guns versus butter issue. It has always been true. It is true now. The Republican Party in the United States constantly champions ever more military spending and then uses the amount of the budget devoted to the military to argue why other kinds of spending, particularly that on working people and social supports, has to be limited lest we run too big a deficit, lest we get the government into trouble, and on and on and on. The same Republicans who cut the taxes of the rich in the December of 2017 now want us to think that they're worried about the deficit. They didn't worry about it then, and it did a number on our deficit by reducing the amount of taxes the government earned. So let's keep clear in our mind what is going on here. And I'm going to leave you with a thought that becomes more and more urgent as the time goes by. The Chinese are now the second economic power in the world. They are en route to becoming the first, and they are en route into becoming an equal power player in the world with the United States. The United States is spending an enormous amount of money on its military not because it needs it, but because domestically it needs it to sustain its economic system. The Chinese don't need it. That's why they don't have 70 military bases around the world. That's why no Chinese troops are active anywhere else in the world, unlike the United States, whose troops are active virtually everywhere else in the world. You could not have a starker difference. But here is the irony of our history. The Chinese have begun in recent years to directly attack climate change, to directly attack the power of big tech companies, and to directly undo the inequality of wealth and income. 
The early steps are not always successful. The early steps are often modest. But they suggest that the strategy of the Chinese is to demonstrate the capacity to be economically successful. Let's remember, over the last 25 years, the economic output of goods and services in China has grown 6 to 9% per year on average, whereas in the United States, it has grown 2 to 3% on average. The Chinese are growing three times faster than the United States. They are accumulating enormous wealth as a result. They are expected to pass the United States in output by the end of this decade that we're living in. And their strategy may well be the following, to show the rest of the world not only how to grow faster, and remember, the vast majority of the world are poor countries whose number one priority is to grow out of poverty as fast and as soon as they possibly can. China is presenting itself as the solution to that problem based on what they have done over their short life as a communist party-run society from 1949 to now, 70 years. And the second part of their strategy is what they're beginning now, to make it less unequal than the United States, more respectful of ecological limits than the United States, and their biggest achievement so far, demonstrating that they are a society that can and should be supported in competition with the United States, is of course their performance in defeating and fighting COVID-19. They have had five or 6,000 people die the United States has had 650,000 people die. There is no contest. The Chinese have done so much better on COVID than the United States that the whole world gasps. A country with four times the population of the United States has a tiny fraction of the deaths of its people compared to that of the United States. Something is being done over there that is failing to be done over here. And the irony is much of the power of the United States empire over the last century was achieved by what is called soft power, the power of the Americans to demonstrate economic growth faster than others, the power of the United States to raise the standard of living of its people faster than others, the ability of the United States to be less unequal, at least until the 1970s, than the other old capitalist countries. The Chinese are doing that now. They're ironically adopting what the Americans used, but this time to defeat the same Americans who've lost sight of the importance of that soft power 
as they focus all their energy and all of their limited resources on the military. It could result, if they push it too far, in a nuclear war none of us will survive. Or it could result in the end of one empire and the rise of another. And I won't have to spell it out if you've understood what I've been saying. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolff.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.